0: Greenville, South Carolina was our first city and it took us almost like two years to go from zero to 50,000 subscribers. Today, we've really kind of honed our craft. We put more funding and resources into growing our audience faster. We've we've identified uh, channels to help expedite that. So in some of our new cities, we might be three months old and have 50,000 subscribers.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of Media Voices. I'm Chris Sutcliffe.
2: I'm Esther Thorpe.
1: And I'm Peter Houston. And we are keeping abreast of all the news from the Ukraine-Russia conflict. There is a lot to discuss from the social network's response to Russian disinformation to the unbelievable resilience of Ukrainian newspapers and the resistance of some of their Russian counterparts as well, but this isn't necessarily the place to discuss it. Needless to say, we're pro-Ukrainian and for what it's worth and where it crosses over with why you listen. Our recent guest Jakub Parasinski has been running a fundraising campaign for the Kiev Independent since late last year. So we'll share a link in this episode's notes and in the newsletter this week. It's not a Russian-Ukrainian conflict; it's a Ukrainian-Putin conflict. You are correct. Yeah,
2: straight invasion.
1: Invasion, <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
3: Anyway, the clip you heard was from this week's guest, Ryan Heffy. He's a COO and co-founder of Six AM City a Newsletter Company. Um, And he tells me they're very close to having a million subscribers across their 24 daily newsletters. Uh, We spoke to Ryan, but his unconventional route into media used to fix Black Hawk helicopters. (laughs) um, (laughs) And how that helped him launch in 16 cities this year. Uh, Spoiler alert, it's
1: all about operations and scale. But before then, we're onto our main story, and I think we were all shocked and saddened this week to hear about the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. From oh. an
2: American Hollywood <laughs> news outlet.
1: <laughs> so yeah, this has been a, a totally bizarre one, and it speaks to the nature of online tabloids. So we would chime before the recording about those kind of wider implications of this but why don't you take us through <laughs> almost a timeline of what happened and a timeline of the most batshit insane celebrity <laughs> tabloid gossip story of maybe the last couple of years esther
2: yeah uh, so there's there's a, an, a sort of la celebrity site i suppose if you're into the sort of thing you might have heard of hollywood unlocked um they they posted this sort of really weird story it was tuesday i think this week they said that the <laughs> you know, they they, they were shocked and saddened announced that her Royal Majesty the Queen had died, and that the um the royal kingdom was, you know, greatly saddened by this. Um as a Brit, we were all mighty confused <laughs> kind of because um when the Queen <laughs> When the queen does decide that you know, her time to go, there's there's quite a lot of protocol that gets followed. Like I think all the radio stations lot, go silent. Yeah.
3: Operation London Bridge. There's a yeah. podcast. I think it was a Guardian Long Read that did it. It was yeah. Yeah. It was it was yeah. fantastic. It <laughs> so, <brilliant.
1: laughs> so the idea that the entire machinery of the British state gets scooped by Hollywood <laughs> unlocks, which mainly focuses on, SDU saying, half naked women, seemed bizarre.
2: Well it's uh, obviously this guy sort of likes cozy up to you know all the all the big American celebrities and whatever but it it's just isn't it when it became apparent that the Queen had not died <laughs> not this this guy um jason lee didn't didn't say sorry or oops, he doubled down on it, and <laughs> he said, "I have receipts, my sources are never wrong. I have yet to see a statement from the palace."
3: <laughs> um, I can't believe the palace didn't get in touch, though. I know.
2: Which I mean, oh. for for, for non Brits, like the palace <sighs> issues absolutely minimal statements anyway and they've said, you know, we're not providing daily updates on the Queen's well
1: I was gonna say, yeah, what's the statement? <laughs> I'm like At oh, no, Jason what? Lee, by the yeah. way. They should <laughs> have
2: holding up today's newspaper.
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: They should have had him in front of his website with it, the the, the okay. day's date on it.
1: Well you've just yeah you've just sidestepped a, a thorny issue there. Which <laughs> newspaper would the Queen hold up to
3: say? It would yeah. uh, it'd have to be yeah. like that she'd be throwing shapes in the hip, the no. hip hop.
2: her royal highness didn't didn't um indulge it was thursday by the time boris johnson sort of said well yeah no i did i did chat with her yesterday you know we had our usual wednesday audience so she's definitely
3: alive. oh can i can i just jump in here with a very important royal segue yes yeah, okay it's not her royal highness yeah her magic it's her royal majesty mm. and i thought she sun- said HRH. No, the sun got all sorts of shit for this this yeah. week because they had the punny headline that rhymed. It wasn't this week, maybe it was the week before. HRH. But was, they were trying to rhyme HRH with WFH, work from home. Mm. Uh, okay. No, it's Her
1: Royal Majesty.
2: But I thought, I thought like, she's got all the, she's got the mark and stuff you can get for your, you know, your bold sources and stuff that's HRH.
1: There's just a lot of royal misinformation going okay. around. Um,
2: it gets weirder, if yes. it is possible to get weirder. So uh, <laughs> as it became apparent to most of the world that the Queen was actually not dead, um, BuzzFeed looked into what, um what Jason Lee was on about because he was still absolutely convinced that you know his sources are right and the Queen had died. Uh, so a Queen did die on Tuesday. BuzzFeed reported that there might actually have been a misunderstanding related to the death of Queens of the Stone Age member Mark Lanigan. Yeah you yeah, go who Previously. died unexpectedly on Tuesday at the age of fifty seven. Well, that explains who, everything. <laughs> it does because I mean so so what one of Jason Lee's um Sort of receipts was that she the queen was supposed to be apparently attending the wedding of edward Enninful, vogue editor <laughs> that's,
3: that's um, like some f- weird fever dream
2: <laughs> which she wasn't firstly because she doesn't attend celebrity weddings secondly because she's got covid and and yeah and and she was apparently supposed to be attending that which you know again she wasn't um that's well, what somebody at the
1: wedding then presumably <laughs> said oh <laughs> they said oh no have you heard that Queens of the Stone Age singer Mark Lanigan <laughs> had died and what? unfortunately couldn't attend
2: the, the, the source said that like somebody close to the Queen got a phone call and then like a few people looked a bit upset and that was the information that they passed back to this guy
1: has the male managed to blame it on Megan yet <laughs> but here's the thing so this is not unusual in the world of um, internet tabloids they will come up with this stuff all the time so you know we're talking about Hollywood and Locktail, but you could substitute that for Hollywood Reporter you could substitute that TMZ. with any num- TMZ yeah, absolutely. the, difference this, the here scale of this. Exactly. That. It's only the scale. And it's the other guys do it with kind of a tongue-in-cheek approach to it. And you, you're not supposed to take them seriously. I mean, unfortunately, people do take the Hollywood Reporter seriously. But the fact is that Jason Lee doubled down and kept yeah. going for days and days and days and days about something that is very possible in the near future.
2: Well, also- he finally admitted he was wrong on Friday. <laughs> but
1: oh, did <it> he? Yeah. Is- <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, oh, it's the weirdest.
3: It. It's the weirdest retraction ever. He
2: said ten reasons we thought Queen Elizabeth yeah. had
3: died. It was like a listicle. It's, it's a listicle on how we fucked this story, uh, up.
2: which included pictures of um, people like Prince Charles <coughs> meeting Edward in full. But anyway, he he, he yeah. at at the very 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 end of this article was we got this wrong and I'm sorry for any distress calls to the Royal Family. But the rest of it was just, this is why we thought we were right. And it was just, I don't know if this is just a British thing, but to British people, this was just absolutely bonkers.
1: Should we not expect that more gossip blogs in the very near future should be maybe indulging in this because obviously this guy got an awful lot of attention got a lot and, of attention. and, and quite a lot of traffic.
3: They are absolutely. And a cynic in me, which, you know, I'm, I find it hard to be cynical, obviously, but um, <laughs> this is all about the clicks. It's all yeah. about the traffic. No one had diff- well, not no one, but I, I, no, no mainstream person had heard of Hollywood unlocked until this kicked off yeah, the guy's a but, fame jockey, right? I mean, he's oh, one hundred percent. He he's been on a hip hop scene for years. Apparently, he was in the hip hop equivalent of Love Island or something, some reality TV show. Um, I don't I don't know what anything about it, other than it was a reality show. Do you think um, he just wasn't
1: doing this? Do you think he just wasn't prepared for the size of I the target he painted on his own back?
3: Absolutely. Right. Don't <laughs> he, I don't think
1: he had a clue,
3: and he more or less says that in the Buzzfeed interview. <laughs> he more or less says because BuzzFeed asked him why do you think no one else was reporting this and he yeah. said because he didn't want to deal with the shit that I had to deal with <laughs> correct correct, yeah, yeah. But, but on a slightly more serious note I saw someone talking on Twitter the other day about how journalism's not a product it's a process mm. and again in that BuzzFeed interview they asked him what their process was and <laughs> the guy had nothing yeah um and I think that's really the point, is that anyone that's doing serious journalism has a process to go through to fact-check this kind of stuff.
2: Peter, because you, you did make the point about, um, at the end of your newsletter this week, you had the joy of having this one as this your top <laughs> story, that like it, it is kind of alarming that stories like that, I mean, yes, it's ridiculous yeah, to us, okay. but there were a lot of people that believed it. And it's just how quickly... Yeah, this is, I, I, I suppose, trivial misinformation. But it, this this week, there's been so much else going around, and, and there've been legitimate mm, news yeah. outlets using, you know, very like old footage, incorrect footage, no. uh, and you know, just
1: footage from video games, uh, you know, claiming that they were from an actual war zone. Yeah, I
2: like it, it, it. it is. I think about process that that process more than ever mm. in in situations like like this week needs to be. As good
1: as it can be. Needs to be done, it needs to be seen to be done.
3: What becomes weird in these is this strange mix of facts and fact and fiction. Mm. You know, and that ten, you know, ten fact checking points to excuse why we were wrong or whatever that little retraction was. He talks about these these generals, Major General Eldon Miller and his predecessor, Rear Admiral James McLeod. Those are real people and that's their real titles. So he's obviously gone off to Wikipedia and, and or Someone's gone off to Wikipedia or to some news report and put some fact in here, which makes it all sound that little bit more believable.
1: Yeah, it's that veneer of legitimacy.
3: Yeah, this
1: was just bonkers, though. The whole thing was bonkers. And now for the news and brief, and this is less a nib and more an explainer, but it's one that you should take your time to read because it's very, very interesting. So Mark Sweeney has written a very good potted history of Global for The Guardian. Global is a radio company, I suppose, uh, explaining why the owner of LBC is poaching talent from the BBC and what its ambitions are. So it's an in-depth look at how its owner, Ashley Tabor King, has sparked a British radio revolution quote-unquote, striking the first of a series of deals totaling more than £600 million that would ultimately create Europe's biggest commercially funded group. So this is potentially a bit of a seismic shift throughout the uh, European radio world. And it's also, as you might expect from that last sentence, a look at how money can buy you influence and a media channel.
2: Is this off the back of the news that Emily Emily Matus is leaving is, the BBC? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. My, um, from my alma mater, uh, Emily, City University, M- I'm Emily Matus.
3: Emily Matus and John Sopel. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah and they and had, they've
3: what was it had eddie mayor they've had for a while and um oh god andrew marr mm-hmm.
1: so it's it's not a you know one and done flash in the pan type oh let's yeah. buy one big name to give us legitimacy this is this is beyond that like this is now an ambition and like i said Europe's biggest commercially funded group in terms of radio that is influence that is power there
3: uh, related to our guest this week, the Press Gazette is reporting that Reach, regional newspaper company, <laughs> is creating 12 new jobs as part of a plan to launch more local email newsletters. Uh, the interesting, There's two interesting parts of this for me. One is that Google's involved as part of this uh, Innovation Lab project. Uh, so they'll get technical support, financial support on the email side of things. I think the other thing is just this idea that, you know, we've I've, the interview this week is 6 a.m. Axios Local is doing a similar thing. And then here in the UK, we've got Reach doing this. So, mm-hmm. It's this kind of hyper local, local newsletter type thing is really having a bit of a moment.
2: Uh, Joshy Herman responded to the headline yeah. by the ITC. There was that. a
0: weird, That's weird really headline good on that. Yeah. So
2: the, the headline was Reach Takes on the Mill with 12-strong email newsletter team. And Joshi Herman, who who runs the mill, just went, it's um, slightly surreal to read this story. Reach <laughs> PLC plus Google getting together to take on the corporate might of our substack newsletter startup based in a bedroom-sized office next to an osteopath. Okay, sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a weird headline. definitely was. But said do this weird thing where they they uh, they ascribe power to people who are mostly powerless so they did it with Stop Funding Hate as well when they said oh you know they're oh, a powerful yeah. lobbying group and it's just like one guy not even full time so it, it is, it's is—it's a very bizarre way of framing it
2: the model of this is only half of it. You've, you've got to have the reporters on the ground and you've got to be writing stuff people care about is the other half of it
3: my reach has got the reporters whether they're writing about stuff people care about <laughs> anybody's guess well except for the guy that's KFC got eaten by another family <laughs> I
1: forgot about that <laughs>
2: Uh LinkedIn is launching its own podcast network according Yay! to our sales. Um uh, so the network is going to include original podcasts from LinkedIn's news team and we'll start with a slate of show twelve shows called LinkedIn Presents, which um if you didn't need this in your life, it's featuring <laughs> programming from quote, and this is a thing now, but I'm like
1: No. Career influence. Sorry, influen- <laughs> sorry career I've seen, influences. I've seen this phrase. No.
2: Career influencers I'm and industry executives.
1: <laughs> I'm not taking part in the rest of the podcast now because the phrase "career influencers" has, has done me in.
2: Oh, cool. like like they're those people that are on LinkedIn, you know, tw- sort of posting like at how they get up at four a.m. to yeah. do yeah, to do like yoga and um, thankfulness meditation. Yeah. Um. It's so, yeah, it's, volcanoes. It's part of a set of tools that LinkedIn are releasing to tools people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you including okay, these so uh, and co- events.
3: so
1: controversial opinion here. I think it'll work. <laughs> yeah. I think they could do really well with it. Yeah. Do we know what the distribution strategy is for this? Is this going to be hosted on LinkedIn directly, or is this going to be distributed via, say, a Spotify?
2: It. Don't, I, they don't say at the moment. Mm. The LinkedIn the Access article is really sparse, but okay. the the newsletter tool they've just released. Um. So LinkedIn's got this habit of releasing features that are insanely powerful. They realise they're insanely powerful and are like, Ooh, we're gonna "Oh, we're going to monetize that," and then turn turn it off. Uh, So David Adeliecki actually started using, we had him on a a couple of months ago, he started using this newsletter tool um, and it just invited all of his contacts to subscribe to his newsletter. He now has 20,000 people and counting subscribing to his newsletter, which is, like he's just experimented with distributing it through LinkedIn. So, and he was there like, you know, he's been really humbled by the the power of that but yeah, yeah. Li- like everything with linkedin they'll dial it down when they realize it's actually a good <laughs>
0: idea
3: this week i'm speaking with ceo and co-founder of 6am city ryan hefe we talked about how 6am city can launch newsletters in a new city in just two months how do you decide where to launch and the economics of starting up a new hyperlocal operation but first, we spoke about Ryan's background, how that has helped in developing the 6 a.m. City Playbook.
0: I uh, have a pretty unique background. Uh, I started in the Fortune 500 world as a mechanical engineer at uh, Sikorsky Aircraft with Blackhawk helicopters and supply chain quality systems, a little uh, non traditional uh, path to getting to media. I w- went from Fortune 500, to running a small aerospace company, to running a nonprofit around STEM education, to tech startups, losing all my money. And uh, found my way uh, through some conversations exploring how to be a better part of my community uh, to meeting my business partner, Ryan Johnston, uh, mm-hmm. whose family owned a print media company. And we said, hey... Uh, how can we create a local media platform that that really helps to better connect with our community? And so while my background's not rooted in media, it was in operations and scale. And combining that with my business partner's media background yeah. allowed us to really look at a new way to approach local media.
3: So most people join media and then lose their money. You, you did it the other way, around. That's kind of yeah. cool.
0: <laughs> I like it. <laughs> you got that right. Um,
3: so tell me about 6am city. What, what do you do? what What's the, what's the kind of mission?
0: Sure. So 6am city, um, gosh, back when the skim was starting almost six years oh, ago, right. uh, we were watching this conversational newsletter approach and the Charlotte agenda had spun up and we're covering local news in a more conversational way and kind of curating stuff from the market. And uh, working with my business partner, we took his family's legacy print media company and said, how do we do this in our city and create a scalable conversational model? So 6 a.m. started in uh, July of 2016 as a newsletter first product. Uh, We deliver at six o'clock every morning, all the local need to know news and events in the cities we serve, and we eliminate politics and crime and punishment. So we're designed to be kind of like a marketing engine for the cities, uh, curating the best of what's going on there about how you can become a better, more engaged and involved citizen, whether that means uh, telling you quickly how you can join boards, nonprofits, to participate in charity events, or where to go have a cocktail on a patio in downtown. It's more of that lifestyle approach um, and then passively educating our readers uh, through the through the product on how they can best experience their city.
3: Go back to that n- the newspaper that, that your business partner, Ryan, had. Was that a standard local newspaper?
0: So they, um, his father spun off um, from Multimedia Inc., which then became, I want to say Gannett, I believe, back mm-hmm. at that, like 20-something years ago. And he started a community paper uh, that was free mm-hmm. to the market uh, and ad-supported to try to cover uh, weekly news. Uh, This is like 20 years ago, really like looking forward going, everything was getting politically divisive. (laughs) The content that they were sharing wasn't great. How does he create a product uh, in print that was gonna be better received for both the reader and the advertiser in the local market? And he started with that local community paper weekly. And in the last economic downturn, my business partner, his Mark Johnson's son, Ryan, He came on and joined their company and helped launch a business publication uh, to kind of stay ahead of American City Business Journals in Greenville, South Carolina, where uh, we were growing quickly as a community, but saw the need for a business product. Then they also helped launch Town Magazine, which is a lifestyle pub, but they had no digital presence. And so there was this opportunity to kind of take this legacy media brand that was very much about community and figure out how does that transition into... The digital space and with an opportunity to scale. Uh, it was so hard to figure out how to scale those print products effectively and the cost structure behind it uh, and some of the, just the legacy burden that that uh, traditional print media has put on itself uh, just made it a challenge for them to figure out You know, how do you take it from the upstate of South Carolina all over the country and it, it just they tried on multiple times and it just it wasn't working the cost structure didn't make sense so we levered some of my engineering skill set and uh, lean manufacturing ideas against a media company and said, hey, how can we do this in a digital capacity uh, and scale it real quick? And uh, that was kind of uh, how we now have been able to uh, be all over the United States.
3: You talked about the scam. I mean, I guess someone's uh, at some point looking at this and then the light bulb goes off and it's got, that's how we scale it. We scale it as a mm-hmm. newsletter.
0: Yeah, I mean, right. So when Ryan Johnston was looking at the skim and at the Charlotte agenda, Ted Williams and Charlotte was doing a really good job taking snippets of news, um, not just their own created content within their product, but like really paying attention to like how content creation is evolving. So the the local newspaper is not the only source of content no. anymore. Every single nonprofit is creating their own content. And it doesn't necessarily have a distribution strategy. Every small business is. There's significant user-generated content now. And sometimes user-generated content about a local development is better and gets more eyeballs than what the newspaper creates or, and is behind paywall. So we were trying to look at what is the distribution vehicle when you curate all this content from your community? How do we get that message out to folks? And so there was a gap in the local marketplace really on distribution of content in a concise consumable manner. And so we saw the opportunity to kind of fill that void. Uh, we created some tools and technology to really listen to the market across all different channels, elevating content no matter uh, where it was coming from, and then perfected the process of packaging and delivery. So we now serve as a means to elevate the voice of all aspects of our community, not just the slimmed down content that's coming out of the local print publications these days.
3: So in the sense of a local paper, You guys are doing maybe what would be the back of the paper rather than the front where the front part would be, you know, drug busts or, or car crashes or whatever, whatever horrible stuff is going on. You guys are at the back where it's sports groups and, you know, community groups and entertainment and the the lifestyle stuff. That's exactly correct.
0: There's other people out there. First of all, that are amazing at investigative journalism. That's not our area of expertise. So, by allowing others to excel in that area to, to take, take that on. And by staying away from the homicides and car accidents and that kind of thing, it allows us a larger total addressable market because we now have Democrats and Republicans uh, in the same, Yeah, we have both sides of the political spectrum in the product and they can't necessarily even discern where our yeah. team lies. So we actually measure our staff um, on how neutral they can be Uh, in the content creation and that keeps us with a larger addressable market and allows us to open up people's eyes more effectively on how to be better citizens uh, in the communities that they live.
3: So when you talk about better citizens, is that just about being involved? You're not, you're you're not making a judgment there about you should be part of this society or this charity or whatever. You're just saying be involved. You decide what you want to be involved in, but be more involved.
0: It's about um, time, talent and treasure. So everyone has their time, their talent, and their treasure, whether that's financial or otherwise, that they can give to the community. And everyone chooses how they do that in different ways. So by paying attention to a wide diversity of content in our markets and exposing people to the opportunities, they get to choose when when and where they want to participate. We're just making that information known to them. So uh, one of the biggest challenges that we're overcoming is um, while uh, Facebook and Google and everything else are taking this algorithm and, you know, you're only seeing the 10 organizations that you follow. We're breaking that barrier down and opening you up outside of the preference set so that there are a lot of other things that you might want to participate in locally. So, uh, you know, I have friends that love food and wine festivals, but they're not part of the Hispanic community. So they never see the Hispanic food festival in their, in their preference set. So we, by not filtering the content down so much, um, are opening up people's eyes on how they can join other elements of their community. And we're seeing great reward uh, in that and economic impact locally.
3: Are there topics you would avoid though, like particular church groups or particular societal groups that have an opinion that is going to sit either way on the right or way on the left or whatever? Would you avoid that kind of content?
0: Yes. Um, We do a pretty good job of not sourcing content from places that are divisive in the first place. And we look for people who, and sources that are conversational in nature or just factually what is truly going on. Uh, For example, if the president is coming to town, we're not saying, hey, the president's coming to town, you need to go participate and check this out. We're saying the president's coming to town and watch out for the traffic. Uh, that you might need to avoid, so that you know how to better participate in your community. It is not necessarily our goal to tell people that they need to that they need to participate in something, but to make them aware of how things in the community are going on, so that they know how best to engage. So another example might be like boards and commissions. Like we're not necessarily advocating for someone to go out and run for some political office or some board or whatever, but letting them know how they can. Uh, and what those opportunities look like on how they might engage or participate so that they know it's an option for them. Almost like civic education. Do you understand the basics? Because a lot of people, even in leadership in a community, you know, we like to pretend we're all smart and understand all these things, but a lot of people just don't know what they don't know. And so we can take five minutes to make people smarter every morning so they can be a better engaged citizen, whether that's their participation in the topic whether they're giving money to a charity or they're joining a board or whatever that looks like. But we really focus on time, talent, and treasure and pride in place, excitement around the communities that they live in.
3: How many cities are you in now?
0: We are now in 24 cities. Um, We tripled the size of the business over the last year or really over the last six months. Um, We've had amazing traction. When we started as a company, we were really a product innovation of community journals, that legacy print media company. And so that started in 2016. And in 2018, we became 6AM City uh, and spun out as our own independent opportunity. That really just allowed us the flexibility to raise some money and grow. Um, and, And through that journey, we spent a lot of time in the first few years perfecting process. How do we do this? What does it look like? How can we scale and replicate this over and over and over again? And through COVID, we really had an opportunity to hone that craft. Uh, We kind of paused some market expansion, just making sure that uh, we had our ducks in a row, that the economy looked like it was coming back. And when we knew that we were in a good place um, in July of this past year, we pulled the trigger on launching 16 new cities. Um, So we went from eight to 24 really in the past six or seven months. Um, We went from About 300,000 subscribers to crossing a million here in the next few days, uh, which is pretty exciting uh, and a giant milestone for our company. Um, And this eight to 24 cities has now taken us coast to coast in the United States Um, and has really been an opportunity for us to learn. Uh, how content scales, how advertising scales, et cetera, um, across the board. It's been pretty, it's been a pretty cool journey.
3: I know your older titles, the titles that were first founded will have bigger subscriber numbers, but do you see the kind of subscription numbers settling out evenly between cities?
0: Uh, No, (laughs) it's the, uh, all of our markets really are scaling uh, interestingly faster than ever before. Greenville, South Carolina was our first city and it took us almost like two years to go from zero to 50,000 subscribers. Um, today, we've really kind of honed our craft. We put more funding and resources into growing our audience faster. We've, we've identified uh, channels to help expedite that. So in some of our new cities, we might be three months old and have 50,000 subscribers. Uh, we're seeing a significantly rapid increase in audience development in all of our markets. More markets faster, faster growing audience, faster revenue on day one. It used to take us like six months to get business, and now we're, getting, we're generating revenue on day zero. So audience growth is exponential. And historically, we grew based out of opportunity, uh, meaning we stayed very tight geographically in the southeastern quadrant of the United States. They were driving distance markets for us. We knew we could get to them. And now we've expanded to much larger markets like Boston, Massachusetts, and Austin, Texas, and Seattle, Washington. And they, they're just a lot different from a total population size. So we're seeing the audience growth meet and surpass uh, even Greenville. So in Greenville, we have maybe 75,000 subscribers. And we're already approaching 75,000 subscribers in Boston, which is just a few months old. We think that there's significant upward potential uh, in getting ourselves to you know, 1.5 to 2 million subscribers really in the later part of this year, uh, which is a lot faster than the first five years, which yielded 300,000. So the pace is picking up. And I think additional markets also helps us do that too. And also a lot of people consume our product that are not from the city. So we used to have people in Boston who would read our Southeastern newsletters because they came from this area and now live up there. And so now when we launched Boston, they automatically picked it up faster. So we are seeing this opportunity with scale uh, and folks who just have ties to different cities.
3: So scaling the business, you learned as you went along and you end up with a kind of a playbook, if you like. And then when you're going into a new city, is it? this sounds really dismissive, but is it like this cookie cutter approach that is just like bang, bang, bang?
0: That's exactly how we designed it. One of the challenges I think that, a lot of legacy media has is that it has it doesn't have that playbook together and the operational efficiency around launching these. So one of the things with my engineering mind and going back to our early days, we built literally a playbook from day one on exactly how we scale the business. Um, we have it set up now so we can launch in any city within 60 days. Um, if we decide that we're going, we turn on uh, several different Pre launch content strategies, audience development strategies, the hiring of the staff. Um, we can get staff onboarded and trained now in two weeks editorially, as if they'd been there for two years, because it's all in this training platform. We actually use a platform called Trainual, it's revision controlled documentation on how we do what we do. And through that platform, it's also a searchable archive of any training. So it eliminates the training burden. On the rest of the team, because it's all there as a resource for you all the time. You know, if we had intellectual property, it's probably our process. We always thought we could do it in two months. Uh, we've really proven that now. And with you know launching these sixteen cities in six months uh, with almost zero issues uh, has been a, like kind of mind blowing. You in, in a sense, how how seamlessly it worked, but it was all basically built on that on that platform and training that we created.
3: So do you have people on the ground in every new city that you go to?
0: So we kind of operate in a hub and spoke model. So uh, there's regional breakdown with uh, top level editorial, branded content, creative, et cetera, support. Um, And then in each city, we actually have two editorial staff. There's loosely one sales executive per city um, right now, and then the paid intern. So the overhead is very low. Uh, for each of the markets, I think overall we operate with like about 3.4 headcount per city, uh, with all the overhead included. But each city can relatively quickly exceed a million dollars in revenue, so the margins per market are good. And that's one of the challenges in media is that you know we've really limited a lot of the cost. Uh, in production and distribution by going through this digital channel and scaled that, so now we have high margin opportunity in each city. And so for us, you know, while we'll do north of ten million dollars in revenue this year, uh, that's really predicated on like the only the eight cities we had. All the sixteen new markets are just in their first year. It costs us about 300000 dollars to launch a new city in year one. It kind of nets out at zero. In year two, it's maybe 50% profit margin. In year three, it's 75% profit margin to a north of a million. So our trajectory on revenue here, you know, 2023 looks to be pretty awesome and, and very sustainable. Um, and that's really what we designed for is to have a profitable, sustainable media company that will allow us to scale and continue to serve these markets uh, in a self-sufficient manner so we can provide a better free product an additional value to our readers.
3: Do you guys get compared to Axios? Axios Local? Mm-hmm. Does it bug you?
0: Well, I mean, we have a great working relationship with Axios. All right, cool. And and really, like, the Charlotte agenda was yeah. that Axios acquired was the model that we had looked at. Um, we've had several discussions with them on what a collaborative opportunity might look like. Um, and I think that we've kind of identified two parallel opportunities in each market. 6AM leads more with lifestyle and community engagement, and they're a little bit more Wall Street Journal of Local, kind of. Yeah, this yeah. more, a deeper dive on certain topics in the in the markets. We stay way away from politics. They lean a little more into some of that stuff, and so there's a, a good complement, and we actually see a really good opportunity to exist in all of the same markets, and see that there's a little bit of a different audience. Uh, one of the things that we both recognize, I think, is that there's opportunity and enough of an audience in all of these cities for all of us to participate and play. We just have done it a little bit more organically from the ground up versus having the bigger war chest of capital yeah, to kind of build out and come down. So they you know, get to start with some more of the national relationships. They had the Axios AM yeah. as a product nationally and then can move into the markets. We're having a little bit more, it's just a different challenge to start with local and regional advertising and to try to build that audience organically locally. But what we're seeing is, less churn, longer lifetime value, more trust and credibility with the product on a local level, which is kind of setting us apart in a different way. We're seeing that clearly with our advertising relationships. Most of our advertisers now advertise across a large swath of our markets instead of just one. So
3: I was going to ask you about that. The the advertising model there, is it local businesses?
0: So it's important uh, in a local community to make sure you're supporting the local community effectively. Our readers don't like a lot of national advertising unless it connects truly with them on a local level effectively. So one of the things that we've learned over the years is that there needs to be different price points and participation and that we can't put too much national in. So while we do fit in national advertising in some percentage of our of our ad inventory, we cap it. And we actually, we would rather operate at, at an almost like limit our revenue potential by, by focusing more on local. The margins actually on local are higher because of the way national advertising is bought. Um, so there is a benefit to us actually in exercising that local model, but it also keeps our readers happy. Um, so we have a a blend, um, but I would say we're maybe 70, 30 local, uh, in our our local and regional advertising now. So we try to find more of those, uh, pillar regional brands that are going to buy with us. There's still a a 200, $250,000 contract, but they're across eight cities instead of across all 24. And we can, we have a good way to manage our inventory that way. To, to really focus on the regional ad
3: buying. And what are you actually selling these guys?
0: Is it, is it banner ads or is it more than that? No, uh, the majority of the revenue is content-based right. advertising. We kind of are very much in line with Morning Brew, Axios, The Skim, The Hustle, etc. on selling content yep. elements within the newsletter product, whether that's text only or header image and some copy with the, some links whether we're hosting the content or creating it ourselves or linking up to their platform uh, creates a variable price point. But uh, there is a a blend of content uh, and display that that makes it meaningful. And a lot of people know like a financial institution, a lot of times can do better <laughs> uh, passing regulatory stuff with display ads than they can with some copy, but we've got a good balance there. Um, and then we leverage that same content on a D to C level for some of our Uh, remnant ad inventory that we sell into larger ad networks uh, for newsletters specifically like buy sell ads or Media mobilize um, that help fill in and generate additional revenue for us that's all the content piece we also have brought back listings brought back classifieds as a digital listing opportunity Mm -hmm. that generates a good chunk of revenue for us that allows a lower price point you know it's 250 dollars a pop but it's all your local events, your small businesses deal of the day, home listings, job listings, and that's a good chunk of revenue for us. And we found a good way to integrate that effectively into the newsletter product and on-site. Uh, that makes it rewarding for smaller local businesses and organizations to participate at a different price point. So it's all kind of a matter of tearing it out Uh, So it works well. And then the stuff that's smaller price point is very automated. Uh, So it doesn't burden our company and we can do more white glove service with our higher end clients uh, and automate stuff with folks who are at a lower price point.
3: So in terms of expansion, what are your plans?
0: We literally just finished getting 16 markets off the ground. There's a a very intentional desire to get those healthy and mature. Um, We have a goal for us that basically says, We need to get a market to 50,000 subscribers as soon as possible and to do a quarter million dollar run rate uh, as soon as possible. And all those markets are well on their way to that. So the next few months, we're focused heavily on that. And then we're also identifying the next markets that we're going into. Right now, uh, one of the ways that we've grown in the past, we see a lot of interest from economic development entities in various cities that have been recruiting us to market. Um, We are literally in the coming week or so launching an RFP process to allow any U.S. city to submit a proposal to bring us into market. Uh, This doesn't mean they have any control over advertising or anything. It's really focused on economic impact in the cities. And so we've taken that, uh, that process to market to help select some markets. In addition to that, we also have six cities that we've identified that we're organically going to this year. Um, that are strategically aligned with other markets that we're already in. Uh, We're about to come out with that list here in the very near future, but we have a a solid six that gets us to about 30, plus some maybe five more that come out of our economic development growth strategy. That intent to continue to scale is there. This year, we're going to kind of go at a steady pace. Steady pace for us might mean like two a month when we get to the middle of the year. And then 2023 we're looking for a larger, much more substantial uh, expansion. Uh, we've identified probably 150 cities that we could be in. We want to get ourselves to 50 total cities as soon as possible and then continue to drive that up to maybe 100 or more.
3: Yeah. I love that idea of getting cities to invite you in. That was just genius.
0: Like Cities advertise. They advertise their events, and the things that are going on in the community. Um, our ability to offer to them uh, the ability to advertise and just have them prepay for a period of time has been a phenomenal opportunity for us to get in market. And they also know that we've proven a sustainable model that's there to stay. So they're basically helping fill a void that's in their own cities. And and this has become a pretty unique opportunity for us. And we usually are communicating with one or two new cities every few weeks that are interested in this opportunity. A lot of them are a little bit smaller, trying to punch above their weight. Maybe not quite viable for us from a size perspective. It, we really have a lot of criteria that helps us identify whether a city is viable for us or not. But we are seeing several larger cities now. And so we want to make sure that we have the most effective process to facilitate some of that that market selection.
3: What is the sort of ideal size for you?
0: Uh, Greenville, South Carolina is probably like the floor for us now. Um, 100,000 people in the city population is probably like the bottom. Um, But what we're looking for really is the guarantee of 50,000 subscribers within the city. We've identified a metric that we've created called Pride in Place. It's kind of like our site selection metric that says, uh, what are inflows and outflows of people look like? What does retail spend look like? Charitable giving per capita look like? A demographic overlay with what our target market looks like. and we've kind of mapped out and identified exactly what cities fit that mold most closest. We even look at social media sentiment around new businesses launching. <laughs> so it's really kind of finding the pride in place. what cities are excited about themselves that are gonna pick up our content that are gonna share it. They're gonna help us grow organically as fast as possible. And there's a lot of growth going on in in cities out there right now, and then other cities are just large enough that they fit the bill anyways. We've kind of, honed our craft uh, into this mid to upper market size that uh, is fitting really well, and we're seeing exponential growth uh, now. The other thing that drives us is uh, talent uh, and financial offset. Now if Citi is helping fund us to get there, that's great. If we've identified editorial talent in the market in advance, that's great. And the last piece is advertisers. Um, A lot of our advertisers are saying, can you please go launch in this city? Uh, And so we know on day one, we have a profitable model because they're all willing to sign contracts and go with us from day one. So that's driving a lot of this year's expansion.
3: You confident that the sort of newsletters as a format is going to keep being as popular as it seems to be at the moment?
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, candidly, I mean, what is one of the most sustainable things in society right now that will be around for a long time is uh, email. It it takes a Fortune 500 company a long time to change the direction of the ship. Like you'd have to have Fortune 500 companies decide to stop using email as a means of communication for email to go away. And until that happens, and something innovates that out, which takes a Fortune 500 company ten plus years to implement, we know we got enough runway to the point where I probably won't be involved anymore. <laughs> you know that's the way this is going. So email is a solid, sustainable backbone. What do we look at next? Uh, How does 6am? I mean, we already, we curate, condense, package, and deliver the content via the email. To scale this into audio and video and streaming opportunities is a piece of cake. To take this into the metaverse is an easy opportunity. So we look at kind of where do we go from here? I think those are 2023 uh, opportunities for us. This year, it's really about scale and perfecting what we have, proving the model, showing that the unit economics work so that we can get ourselves in a position to inject significant capital uh, at the beginning of 2023 to really take this to uh, the next level.
3: We ask all our guests for a recommendation for our listeners, some piece of media that you've loved. What would you recommend?
0: I'm a big consumer of media news uh, these days. That's probably one of the Main sources of content that I pay attention to, other than our own. I'm a big fan of a media operator. Uh, they do a, a great job with their newsletter product. It's a good source for me, giving me a little bit deeper dive uh, into some things going on uh, within our industry. I've been a fan of that for a long time um, and has been a great resource. And, you know, sometimes I agree with it is sometimes I don't there's a lot of different opinions out there on where things are headed um and it's really helped us kind of almost decide that we're you know with reading what everyone's sharing and the predictions you know I think we've really helped us narrow the fact that we're going to stay focused on what we do best and here we are all
1: so excited about the publisher podcast awards which are coming up in would you say it's now weeks rather than months
2: no, we're definitely selling the month.
1: Okay. <laughs> right. yeah, we probably well, need the month. If you are as excited as we are, then you can head across to publisherpodcastawards.com slash tickets in order to grab your spot for the prestigious event itself. So this is a live event. I know that we have basically forgotten what those look, sound, smell, feel like, but it's going to be an absolutely fantastic evening. All the luminaries from the podcasting world are going to be there, and we cannot wait to see your smiling faces as we hand out some of those trophies. So you can follow us at PubPod Awards for more information on Twitter, or do head across to publisherpodcastawards.com.
2: And if you want to be the first to hear about really exciting stories like Queen Elizabeth is not dead in your inbox, (laughs) uh, we have a daily newsletter uh, that we do the top four media stories of the day and um, our commentary on it. So you can sign up for that on our website, voices.media.
3: And on the same website, voices.media, you can chip in to keep us smiling, keep us in coffee, keep us in tea, keep us in, I don't know, food, I suppose. Uh, go along to our coffee page and you can chip in uh, just a one-off or you can chip in every single month and
1: give us your support. But until next week when we'll be back with more celebrity gossip and a fantastic guest, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.